Oh yeah. Shake the dice and steal the rice, baby. From the iconic early 90s documentary about the drag balls in New York City, Paris is Burning. I highly recommend it. Lots of um, very funny stuff. Learn about shade. This is back way before all that stuff became even remotely mainstream. Like I said, this was the early 90s. Very early 90s. So you get the, but let me get to the point. Why am I, well, why, by the, let me get to the real point. Hello. It's Living Large and Hard. How are you? So this is a bunch of uh, episodes of which this is one about brushes with fame. And we're starting off not with a brush with fame, but a brush with fabulous. Now, I believe this was when Bobbis and I went to see Dylan Francis at that horrible, horrible venue, Terminal 5 in New York City. He will chime in on the Facebook page, Living Large and Hard, where I also throw up links to different things, like the music one, I threw up some links to different things in there. If you're interested, want to go more in-depth, go deep, that's where you look. There's also Living Large and Hard on Instagram, but that really... um kind of unrelated to this but the Facebook page I set up just for this so anyway let's get the fuck back to where I was kind of starting from so left Terminal 5 and ran into a uh, cotillion um, a gaggle um, a flotilla of drag queens and they were fabulous and I have no idea where the fuck they were heading to or from. Yeah, I mean, we got out of the concert, and so that had to be near midnight. So I'm guessing they were heading out for the night. You know, kicking things off in a real fabulous style. Not ending it like pussy style like us. And um, one of them broke out into a, uh, an operatic aria in Italian. I guess it's Italian. It sounded Italian to me. And it sounded really, really good. So, of course, I... I brava! Brava! Gave them one of those. Gave them, not him. And they were appreciative of my appreciation thereof. So there's a little brush with fabulousness. Uh, let's get on. This, These are all just loosely categorized, the different episodes. This one is going to be acting in television. Some of the others had actors in them. Some... You know, just doesn't, it doesn't fucking matter. I just need to kind of group them so I could get my head around what, what the fuck's happened. Which I, I, Obviously, from how poorly this one's starting out, my head is way up my ass at this point. Anyway, here's a quick one, because I, I think this person is just completely unfunny and always have, and they turned out to be a dick. I was the restaurant manager at the Doubletree Hotel in Tallahassee, nicest hotel biggest bunch of assholes I ever dealt with in customer service, which is basically my whole life, uh, was there. Horrible fucking people. They would complain about something, and I would say, I'm very sorry, um, can I comp your meal? No, I don't want you to comp my meal. I just wanted to let you know. I could have written a note, you fucking cocksucker. Okay, thank you, sorry about that. Uh, one time the bar was really busy. And this guy waves me over. 
He goes, you work here? I see you got a name tag. I go, yes. He goes, how come no one's helping that guy out? That was the bartender he was referring to. And I said, well, uh, did you need something? He said, no. But I'm wondering why that fat bitch over there can't help. And gestured to one of the waitresses who was staying out of the bartender's way because as any of you who have bartended know, you want to make your money when you can make your money. And this place wasn't ordinarily busy, except football weekends. Um, and then the guy said to me, yeah, look at me like, like you're fucking crazy. And I went, well, you know, I wasn't really sure what look I had on my face, but the look on my face, on the inside of my face, wasn't I'm crazy. It's that I want to take this name tag off and grab you by your fucking nose and drag you out in the street and beat the shit out of you. And his, his wife just kept going, no, please, please, no, no, please, stop, stop, please, trying to get him to chill the fuck out. So it was that kind of clientele. I used to get wasted. I mean, oh man, I hated that place. Anyway, Stephen Colbert came for something and he stayed there. And uh, one of the one of the, my not my waitresses, one of the waitresses that I was nominally in charge of was all excited. And I said, "Just leave him alone. Don't don't bother him. Oh, I'm gonna don't bother him." And I was off doing something. Came and he was sitting at the bar, Stephen Colbert. And apparently his people told management that everybody's supposed to just leave him alone. And, I mean, everybody was. But a, uh, just a customer went up, because I saw him. He was there, and I went and did something, come back, and he's getting up and leaving. And then one of the employees said, wow. I go, what? Uh, I go, what's, big, what's going on? And they said, well, someone offered to buy him a drink, and then he left. What a dick. So, fuck Stephen Colbert. I mean, I never liked him anyway. Uh, so, that, you know, I was kind of happy to see that he was a dick. And um, New York, riding the subway, doof mom and I. And guy gets on, sits down kind of across from us. Looks very familiar. Hit the Rolodex in the head, and I'm like, ah, I know who that is. I go, that's the bosom buddies guy, the guy, you know, the father on uh, curls. Yeah, Peter Scolari. And he's one of those, uh, some people, when you see him and they're famous, they don't give, they just act like they're alive. Other people act like they expect something, you know, like they expect you to go, oh, I mean, it's Peter Scolari. Not that big a deal. So just rode along, kind of over listened, uh, over listened listened over and overheard what he was talking about. It was some kind of family matter with his wife about going and doing this and that. Anyway, another New York City hit, which most of these are, if you've been listening along, forward or backward, because the ones that are coming up have some, a lot of New York shitty, shitty. God, this is a mess. I'm really sorry. I'm not going to start over. I don't feel like it. What am I, seven and a half minutes in? Nah, I'm just going to keep going. Because that's what it's like. Now, let's say we were actually sitting here talking. Am I going to stop the conversation and start over again because I muffed a couple things? Fuck no. Um, another one, uh, Boston to New York AIDS ride, a bicycle ride. First 
long distance ride I got into and got me into long distance riding and out of mountain biking. I would see these full page ads in Interview Magazine in the late 80s about this fundraiser bike ride from Boston to New York in three days. And I thought that just sounded impossible. Um, little did I know, Tour de France, they do, you know, they can do 220 miles and the next day do 100 miles, and, you know, so it's not that big a deal at all. But at the time, I had no idea. And for me, it seemed insurmountable. So the first year, I let it go. The next year, I signed up and um, told everybody, told everybody I was going to do this thing, so I had no way I was going to back out. It just it made it impossible for me to be a pussy. And um, it was, what, 250 miles, so, yeah, not that big a deal, 80-some miles a day. And they said it was, it was hilly, and here in eastern Pennsylvania, it's, it's damned hilly as well. It's not like on the west coast where it's mountainous, but it is hilly. So I started training in the, Le uh, the Lehigh Parkway, which is seven miles long. It's a seven-mile loop. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Uh, runs on both sides of a stream. It's down a little valley right in town. So that's a seven-mile loop. I started doing that on my, on my mountain bike, seven miles. And then I got to where I could do a doublet, 14, 21. And then that got boring. So what I started doing is uh, riding on the road, and I started at 25. I go up 12 and a half, come back 12 and a half. And then the next, the next week, I'd go out and do 35. Got to where I was riding to Reading, or Reading, if you're not from around here, Pennsylvania, which is 60 miles out and back. And then I started going the other way, because that's flat. That was that became like a slog, like a horrible slog. It was just paddle, 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 paddle. Um, and I started going the other way towards the Delaware River, which is about the same distance. I worked it out to where I had a 66-mile loop. So that way with 66, and then to do my first century, which is 100 miles, it did the 66, and then went back out, and it was 95 <laughs> at the finish line. Trying to do my first century, trying to get 100 miles in one ride, and I got to the road, and on the other side of this road was an old um, canal, because the canal was right there, and the river, the Lehigh Canal. And the, actually, it was the Delaware Canal. I'm sorry. I like to be accurate when I can, even though for some reason I can't even talk. Um, so the Delaware Canal ran behind this old stone hotel, the two stories. You know, it was ancient, big, thick walls. It was a really cool place, and um, the Robsville. And in front was the river, and there was a big porch, and that was my finish line. So I get to the road, two-lane highway, and the odometer says 95 miles, the computer, the bike computer. My first thought is, who the fuck is going to know? And my immediate second thought is, I'm going to fucking know. So... Turn around, go out two and a half, come back two and a half. Ended up right when I crossed the road there, it was at 100. And then went and got a pitcher of beer. Uh, wonderful. So anyway, that's the Boston, New York age ride. Um, first time that I did it, 
uh, I really enjoyed it. It was very emotional. I cried every day. It was, uh, it was fantastic. Um, there were people who were riding with t-shirts with the names of um, departed friends and family on it. And you just see dozens and dozens of names. There were people who were riding and they had no business going 25 miles, let alone 250. And at the end of the night, the first people in, we'd get cleaned up and then we'd go to the finish line and cheer in the people that were coming in, like barely making it, because there was a cutoff. They'll, they'll take you in, they'll take your bike and put you on a bus and bring you in. And so these people would come in and some of them would be absolutely shattered. Like they just barely made it. And then they'd hear clapping and cheering and, and they, they'd, some of them would just start bawling. Some would grin. Um, it was great. And when I got to New York City, and we, we would come, we came in, and then we came down on the uh, Hudson River side. And I saw, I, looked, I just happened to look up and see Grant's tomb up above me. And I realized that, fuck, I did it. All the nine months of training and all the fundraising, I had to raise, I had to raise $1,200 and all that stuff. And I just, I lost it. Pedaling along, weeping, weeping happily. Um, so that was the first year. Second year, there was a hurricane. So that kind of screwed things up. The first day got canceled due to the hurricane. And um, we slept in the New Haven Convention Center in the balcony on the floor at the front row. That was my idea, would be the, the least disturbance if we were in the balcony, because the floor was all covered with people sleeping. Instead, because what they would do is give you tents. And then you'd just, you'd find where your tent was supposed to be staked out, you'd stake out your tent, you have a tent mate, and then they had shower trucks set up and all kinds of stuff like that, and they fed you. So that was all out the window first day. So I, I looked at the floor and said, no, this is not going to work. So I go, let's go up in the balcony and sleep at the front. And that way no one's going to mess with us, you know, in that underneath the seats there. So every time it was wide enough for me to be on my side and for me to roll over, I had to like shimmy and shuffle. So that was the first night. Second night, um, everybody got ready and you had to go out and try and find your bike. It was, a, it was a disastrous setup. So we go out and looking for our bikes, and then it turned out some people, their bikes never came off the truck. So the trucks just went on, and you found that out afterwards, which is what I found out afterwards that my bike had gone on. So the next night, we were, uh, where the heck were we? I can't remember. Uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut where um, Ringling had the elephants come over the bridge to show the bridge was safe when they opened some bridge there, you know, big thing. And they have, uh, I heard this sound out in, in one of the parks, and it was, they have monk, what are they called? Monk parakeets, big nest full of them. 
Um, we slept in a school. Those of us who got fucked on the second day and could not get our bikes, we got to leave early. And so we took off, and I got to ride on the last day down the Connecticut coast into New York. Um, didn't cry. And did get to go onto the floor at Madison Square Garden because that's where the finish line was, Madison Square Garden. How cool is that? First year, there was a concert, so we had to go up to some other venue inside Madison Square Garden that I didn't know existed. Um, but that year, got to go actually on the floor. And then we had to go upstairs. We had to go up a stairway to get somewhere. I don't know where the fuck it was. And then there was someone else going up with me. And I said hi to them, and she said hi to me. And she goes, I remember you from last year. I go, oh, okay. I go, why is that? She goes, you said some encouraging shit to me or something. I went, oh, okay. Well, I'm glad I did that. How'd it go this year? She goes, eh, it was all right. And we're going up the stairs, and I look out, and there's a Blarney Stone, which was a chain of New York faux Irish bars that were pretty damn Irish. Um, I said, do you want to go to the Blarney Stone? And I got to buy some shoes because mine got ruined because of the hurricane, my tennis shoes. So I'm walking around in my socks and my bike stuff. And she goes, yeah, sure. Because there's a Payless right next to the Blarney Stone. I mean, how perfect is that? So down we go. Get our shit, our packet or whatever we had to do. Park our, our bikes were parked. Um, so I was on the floor at Madison Square Garden. That's pretty cool. That's a brush with fame right there. Scoreboard over me, that kind of shit. Um, go get my shoes. Uh, person goes, you want me to box them up? I'm like, nope. Put my one foot with just a sock on it up on the counter. I go, I'm wearing them out of here. And then we went to the Blarney Stone. And we sit down. And the barman talking to him. And we start talking. And he's from Ireland, so we start talking about Ireland. And he comes back and he goes, you know who your mom is over there? I go... That's Grandpa Munster. That's Al Lewis. He said, yep. And he was over there eating, uh, what was it, sausage and sauerkraut and drinking a half and half. So that was pretty cool. Uh, Grandpa Munster, a.k.a. Al Lewis, a very well-known basketball scout, believe it or not. He looked, just like, <laughs> he looked just like Grandpa Munster, even without the makeup. Uh, there's a Jack White concert at Webster Hall that was put on by American Express and when I think of it I'll find it because there is a link to it and it was first come first serve I mean you signed up it was all will call so so we had to wait three hours to get in and then inside they didn't really have it set up right so we had to wait another hour and it was not nice. Uh, the line started snaking back on itself, and you could tell people were eyeballing like they could, when this thing moves, we can cut over and cut these people off that have been waiting here for four hours. But, you know, it didn't really happen, so that was cool. Anyway, this was when Jack White was at his peak. He had just come out with Blunderbuss. And he was touring with two bands, a female band and a male band, and he would decide at breakfast which band was going to play the night that they were playing. And it was completely different, he said, he'd play with each one. I mean, it didn't matter. They were all 
the same songs, but you know, it was different because it was different musicians, not because it was male and female, just because it was different musicians. So what this was, he ended up playing with both bands. It was really cool. Um, it was really cool. And I can see my head. This is one of those things where I can see my head in the, in the video, because I know where to look. Yeah, I was right up pretty close. Um, and then afterwards, Webster Hall, when you leave, like, look at the stage. Now look to your left in that corner. you got to go down this little stairway, and there's a VIP section up top, of which I sat in one time, um, to see MIA and Solange opened in Solange. Everyone acted like it was a big fucking deal. Uh, I didn't get it. People are going nuts. I guess because it's Beyonce's sister. Whatever. Table next to us. I'm not sure how we got up into the VIP section. One of those things. Um, table next to us had private security. MIA killed it. But anyway, you get on this little stairway and coming down from the second floor was Maya Rudolph uh, from Bridesmaid Saturday Night Live. And again, uh, a famous person who was very short. And she was one of those, like I looked at her and she looked up at me and she had that look of, it looks kind of like fear. I don't get it. Like, are you going to say something to me? I'm like, eh, I don't really give a shit. Um, Gary Oldman was the director of this video, Extravaganza. And at one point while we're waiting outside, someone says, hi, Gary. And there's Gary Oldman from uh, Sid and Nancy. Great movie. Love, love it. And he was just in Mank, which was pretty good. But there's Gary Oldman waving to us. What's up, man? Uh, went to um, a show at Radio City Music Hall. It was a one-off that was sponsored by the Museum of Modern Art. And it was Anthony and the Johnsons. And what I noticed while we were waiting to get in was there was $13 boxes of popcorn that people were buying for some reason, and there was no popper. So God only knows where this fucking popcorn came from at $13 a box. I guess if you're hungry. So anyway, it was Anthony and the Johnsons. And it started out with a very simple stage with a scrim and Anthony in front singing in that ethereal way of theirs. And then the scrim would go up and then there was the lighting got progressively more interesting and other scrims would go up and end up there was a full orchestra, which you could hear, but you couldn't see. And until about three quarters of the way through, there was absolutely no noise from the crowd whatsoever except applause. None. It was actually quieter than quiet because the sound of breathing it tamps down any other noise. It's like white noise. And I looked up, I was like, how many fucking people does this place? It was sold out. I was like, how many people were there? And, and nobody was making a noise. And it's 6,000. It was that good a show. Um, very entrancing. Doof Mom was there, and she said, I don't know why, but I'm crying. I was like, mm, I can see that. 
it, it was that kind of thing. But before the show started, uh, Tilda Swinton came down the aisle. And Only Lovers Left Alive is the movie I like that she was in the, about vampires in Detroit. Fucking, I literally like that movie. She's in a lot of stuff. And she's, she's known for jacking her look so she looks weird, but she looks fucking weird anyway. She's like some alien schmoo. But she was there and she was, she was dancing down the aisle. Uh, happy to be there. Now at that Letterman show that I talked about uh, in the New York, like New York moments, brushes with fame, which you probably, if you're listening to this, well, you could be coming or going on it. Either way, went to Letterman when he moved to CBS and got tickets right away because there's a three-year wait. And I realized that now that he's changing networks, the wait is over. So I got tickets to Shakedown show number two, which means it didn't even go on the air, which when I realized that from the date and the fact, I just... I went, oh, man, it's going to suck. But no, it was just like a regular show. Blues Traveler was on there and all kinds of shit. But anyway, while we're waiting outside, it's where uh, Dick Cavett came and worked the line. Old school talk show host Dick Cavett, which I mentioned in the New York Moments one. And at one point, I hear a little buzz in the crowd and look over, and there's Letterman. He came down the back way. He saw us from his office and came down. He had a football, tossing it back and forth in a stogie and came out, waved to us, asked how we're doing, and then took off. So, I, that, I mean, I was happy to see David Letterman on the stage. So that, was, that one kind of got me jacked. But this next one, it was in, this would be London, uh, Chelsea section of London, the King's Road, and it would have been in the mid-90s, I believe 96. And uh, walking down the street, don't know really, I think it was just outside seeing, walking down the street, and here comes one of the most beautiful women I have ever seen in my life. They've got big sunglasses on, they've got their hair just done up, on top of their head, talking on a cell phone, but with an American accent. But I actually, I didn't come to a stop, but I did slow down on a crowded sidewalk. And when they went by, I, I couldn't help it. I had turned my head. And the second ex, Mrs. Living Large and Hard said, did you, that's that actress. I go, yes. It was Gwyneth Paltrow who was there, near as I can figure out, doing the movie Sliding Doors, which I've never seen. Um, Heart Eight, I liked her in that one. Uh, Seven, that was, you know, too bad she got her head cut off. Oh, did I, did I spoil that for anybody? Anyway, oh, just unbelievable, man. I've, I've rarely seen humans that stunning, and she wasn't even trying. You know, this is, fuck. 25 years ago? Yeah, way before that nutty goop shit she's into now. Not that she, you know, I've seen other stunning women as well. There was one in the Taco Bell in East Lansing. 
I was standing there waiting to get my order taken in line, and I turned to the left, and there's a, a young woman. And I look, and she has naturally white hair. Her eyebrows are white, her hair is white, and cornflower blue eyes, and spectacularly clear skin. And she's just radiating joy. And I, I just turned and looked, and I went, damn. She goes, oh, I'm sorry. She thought she bumped me or something. I'm like, oh, no. Don't worry about it. You know, I should have said, in about 20 years, I'm going to see Gwyneth Paltrow, and I'm going to have the same reaction. So anyway, <clears throat> oh, my God, I talked myself out. So anyway, thanks for listening to Living Large and Hard. We're here at the Skybox High above uh, Route 309, Allentown, Pennsylvania. We're going to listen to some traffic when we go. Like I said, the Facebook page is set up. I throw links up to what I'm talking about. If it's if it's pertinent, um, you can go there and check that shit out. You can get a hold of me there. You can get a hold of me here. You can get a hold of me just about anywhere. SoundCloud, you can make comments. People do on a regular basis. Um, there's links there to my email and to Facebook. I really appreciate you listening. Appreciate any feedback. Bob also let us know if that was the show that we went to to see Dylan Francis, where we also saw the people making out, where if Bobus wasn't turned and actually looking back, slobbering on them, they might have actually fornicated. But, oh well, can't have everything. Um, again, thanks for listening. Let's keep in touch, huh? Let's do this again. All right, it's been groovy. Bye now.